0: We'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to Joshua chapter 2 as we continue working through this series. Um, we come to Joshua chapter 2. We're gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to preach the entirety of the chapter. Wait till I tell you how many points there are in the sermon. You might fall out of your chair. Let's hope not. Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. Again, this is the Word of God. Let's give attention to it. You may know the story well, but let's listen to it like we've never heard it before, that the Spirit of God might illumine our minds to the important principles and truths that come from this true story, this historical narrative here in this chapter. Joshua 2, beginning with verse 1, there we read, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then what the Lord gives, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, so the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The man said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the streets, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. And the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of the noon, and They told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away before us. Amen. This is the word of the living God. A young man and his friend, the owner of an apple orchard, were walking through it one day. The skies were blue and the weather was excellent. The smell of apples growing or were growing on the, on the air. You could smell them as they were walking. They were pleasing. It was even quite refreshing. As they walked and talked, passing by row after row of trees, they happened upon a sickly-looking one. It was bare. There were no leaves growing on it. The younger friend looked to his older friend and asked, What is wrong with this tree? Why does it not have any fruit on it? The owner friend answered, This tree has been a problem for us for many years. Each season it struggles to bear fruit. Though we have watered it, tended to it, done everything, we know to help it grow apples, it never does. I wonder as you hear that story, more than likely fictional, don't even ask me where I got it from, I got it from somewhere. Do you understand the point of the metaphor. Clearly the tree has a problem. It may be sick. may not even be an apple tree. The same is true in the Christian life. Fruit bearing is not only the work of God, it is also something you are to demonstrate. If you are united to Christ by faith alone in Christ alone, fruit will and must be the result. It really can be no other way. Fruit must be The results of one who says they are justified by faith alone and Christ alone because of grace alone. One who is truly united to the Lord Jesus Christ will indeed bear fruit that demonstrates that they know him. Now here in chapter two we're probably dealing with an event that happened prior to the events that were described in chapter one verses ten through eighteen. It is likely that Joshua, hearing the report of the two spies, determined to take the land that Yahweh was giving to the covenant people. Now chapter two has drawn much debate. Sadly, I think it's taken us away from the main points of the chapter. But chapter two has drawn much debate especially as we consider the issue surrounding the actions of Rahab. Of course, the questions come, did she or did she not sin when she deceived the leaders of the town? And I'm going to tell you now, just so I can let you right off the hook and keep you from being in suspense the entire sermon, I'm not going to seek to answer that question in the sermon. Why? Why? Because that is not the point of the chapter. Now, if you'd like to know what I think about it ethically later, you can ask me, not today. I won't have time anyway. But you can ask me. I'll give you my opinions as to this matter, but that is really hardly the issue of the chapter itself. What is important to note is that the writer of the book never condemns or praises her actions. Rahab even is included and acclaimed in the book of Hebrews as well as James. What is important, however, is the central thought of the text. And it's not the question of the ethics of Rahab. The question, the central point of this particular chapter as it relates to you, as it relates to your faith and your obedience is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. And so I'm going to show you here in uh, Joshua 2 this afternoon that the seed of the woman is spared from judgment through a demonstration of her faith, just as you are spared from God's righteous judgment, not by works, but by faith alone. I'm going to show you here in Joshua 2 that the seed of the woman Is spared from judgment through a demonstration of her faith, just as you are spared from God's righteous judgment, not by works, but by faith alone. We're going to consider the entirety of this chapter, not in two points, not in three points, not even in five points, but in six points. Don't panic, they're all very short. Six points as we work our way through the chapter, and I'll announce those points as we come to them in turn. First, we're going to consider the plan. By the way, all these points start with P. The plan. We see that right there in the opening lines of the chapter. In verse 1, there, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. There was a mission. It's clear to go spy out the land. There was battle plans prepared. There was a a course of action established. There was a sense of prudence on the behalf of Joshua uh, as he engages at the onset of this battle that he's going to have with Jericho um, coming in chapter uh, 6. This is certainly, of course, something any good general would do, and Joshua does that. But there's also a sense of patience on his part. Notice he doesn't rush in. He's been told by God uh, that the land is yours. He's been told that, it, that everything that he has been promised in chapter 1 is, belongs to him and the people. But there's a sense of patience on his part. This is not necessarily a lack of faith on his part. He knows that Jehovah had given him the land. But he did not, not not yet know how the battle was going to take place. And in fact, when we get to chapter 6, we're going to find out that no human being alive would have ever considered or even come up with that, that kind of a plan to take a city. And so... Joshua, knowing the mission, exercises wisdom and prudence and patience. And then he says to them to go into this place and to do it in secrecy. Notice he says that two men were secretly sent into Jericho. These are spies. No two ways around it. This is their mission. They are going to to spy out their enemy. They are going to understand their enemy. They are going to learn all that they can about their enemy. Why? So that they might defeat their enemy. When I was in the army, one of the things that we were taught, in fact, it was uh, the different methods and methodologies of the Russian army. It was the co- height of the Cold War, and that's when I was in, and so we were trained and taught various uh, tactics of the, the Russian military. Why? Because it's good to know your enemy and their tactics. Why? So you might win you might defeat them. Many of you know that I love to play chess. And one of the ways that the top chess players in the world defeat their opponents is that they study their games and they study their tendencies and their moves and what they might do under normal these circumstances. This is precisely what Joshua is doing. He is going in, he is learning about the enemy. And as we as Christians embark on our pilgrimage in the Christian life, it is important to first remember that we are not at peace. There's no peace. We are not at peacetime. This is wartime. We are the church militant. We are in a battle. And as a result of that, we must remember that even as Joshua employs an offensive effort to send in the spies, we too are on the offensive. Too often in the church today, we act as though we're on the defense. We act as though we're the ones that are being attacked. And in a sense, we are, but it's a response to our attack as the kingdom of light overcomes the kingdom of darkness. We are the church militants. The gates of hell will not prevail, and too often that verse has been used to demonstrate the weakness and defense of the church. It's the opposite. We are on the attack of the gates of hell. We're not. It's not the other way around. And so we're in this battle. We need to better act like it. The Apostle Paul exhorts the church in Ephesians 6 regarding the whole battle and the armor that must be worn if we are going to be successful in the war against the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Having said that, therefore, we must resolve to study the devices and schemes of the enemy. What are they? Who, who is the enemy, and how might we deal intelligently with them as we engage in this battle? Now, I rarely do this in a sermon, but I'll do it here. In fact, I'm going to start doing it in the bulletin, but it's an excellent book by Thomas Brooks. He's a Puritan, if you've never heard of him before, but now you have, but the book is called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I strongly commend it. I wouldn't necessarily rank in the must-read category, as I mentioned in Sunday school earlier, but it's up there, and it will help you with understanding the efforts of the evil one, your enemy, as you engage in this battle. So Joshua has a plan. He exercises it with prudence, with patience, understanding that he is in a battle. Next, this chapter highlights for us not only the fact that there's a plan, but he, it exercises providence much to the point, God's providence. It begins in the latter half of verse 1. You're thinking, well, boy, there's 24 verses in this chapter. He's never going to get done. Well, it'll speed up. In the latter half of verse 1, they go into this land. The land is known as Jericho. And they come to the house of a prostitute of all people. You might know, I think, well, what does that even matter? How does this relate to even the work of God's providence and why does it? how was it relevant well first that would not be a normal place for a godly person to go prohibited but as it turns out quite wise as they trusted jehovah who promised the land to them they would that that he that he would watch and care for them they were men that understood that god works through divine providence And here he exercises, God exercises divine providence in a way that nobody would really have contrived or even considered, but here it happens that they come to this home of a harlot, a prostitute. But there's also a sense of wisdom as God works and maneuvers this entire event because the place of a prostitute would be a place of people, busyness, in and out, the door of the building. All the time. An easy place to, to, uh, to conceal uh, the efforts of spies who are going in to take this land. Here we see, really, a, a great example of God's the, of the theology of providence is God's working through ordinary means in order to protect these two men. There's nothing really extraordinary about this event other than the fact that it happened but it happened in such a way that it would protect these two spies that they might not lose their life and that they might be able to go back and report to Joshua there at the end of the chapter to trust that, that the Lord has truly given this land into theirs, into their hands. And so God uses means. What were the means? Well, first the home of the harlot. And then through her narrative and discussion with the city rulers, and her hiding them out, all of these things are happening, ordinary things, simple things, that God's works might be accomplished. Now, God does that today, of course, in the life of the church. He doesn't do, typically, it's not flashy Pretty simple, steady as we go, plodding along in the Christian life, which is really what the Christian life is, a plodding from point to point, fireworks, no, none of that's happening typically. God just uses ordinary means to steadily move his people along as they battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. But he gives to them those simple means by his providence that they might effectually battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. Had God not provided for these men these simple things, that's a simple house, yes, it's a harlot, but it's a simple woman. There she is, this house, all these things are happening, pretty normal, by and large. Had God not provided these things for them, they'd be dead dead. And as God provides for the church, the weapons of our warfare, as we labor against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we must use them. We must see them for what they are, an act of God's kindness to his people to help them in the battle. If you don't use them, you'll be dead. And so these men, of course, they take advantage of the situation and they're very thankful of, for the matter and... They're hit away, but there's a problem. Point three, if you're keeping score at home or in the room, there's a problem. The problem is highlighted there very early in the passage, verse two. It was told to the king of Jericho Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Uh oh. Somebody leaked, somebody let the cat out of the bag. Somehow, some way, he found out that these two men are in town and they're up to no good, at least from his point of view. This king of Jericho hears this news and he certainly is not real pleased about it, is he? And so he determines to launch a counterattack against the efforts of God's people against these two godly men. As he hears about the plot of these two men to search out the land, he sends an envoy of his own to find out what's going on, to find these men. Not a terribly unreasonable response when you're in battle, when you're in a war. We must learn that as Christians today, that as we are, as the church of Christ, as we make plans and as we go into battle and we are in a battle, look, the enemy is going to respond. He's not going to just sit by and say, oh, okay, whatever. Whatever you want, it's not a problem. No, the enemy doesn't like what we're doing. We are lobbing bombs into his camp and he's not happy about it, so he is going to lob bombs back. And he does that through various means, through various issues as pilgrims in this world. We recognize that the enemy of our souls is going to respond against us, against the church. And we see that through the moral debasement of our age. We see that through the watering down of the most basic fundamental things that God has given to the world marriage, family. The onslaught of abortion and murder in the womb. I mean, let's cut them off at the pass. If we can kill them in the womb, we can stop the next generation of Christians from coming into the world. On and on it goes. The enemy will indeed respond. We must then, therefore, be vigilant about using the weapons of our warfare, the prayer, prayer and sacraments and the word of God. Fourth, I told you it would go pretty quickly. Fourth, there is a profession, verses 4 through 7. The profession, of course, is from Rahab. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the, two, the men went out. I didn't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had hid laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. There's an action here of a woman who believed something. It's important to recognize this and keep the order in place. These actions that she is performing here, the ethical dilemma in question that you can... Resolve on your own if you'd like. I can even give you a great book on it. But, but then also the actions that she performs for the spies to hide them, preserve them. What are some of the actions of Rahab? First, she hides the spies, Verses, verse 4. God uses her to protect his people. She lies to the enemies. Now, whatever way you want to look at this, it was a lie. You work out the ethical dilemma of it later, but it was a lie nonetheless. And then she professes her faith, verses 8 through 11, a faith that she possessed already prior to hiding the spies, prior to lying to the city officials, she already believed based on the report she was hearing about this God of Israel who was able to do great and wonderful things, and that's exactly the report she gives. We have heard, verse 10, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. Verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, and on it goes. She had heard something of the God of heaven. Somehow, we're not told exactly how the information got to her ears, but it got there nonetheless, and she believed. And as a result of her belief, she acted on it. Now, this is the lesson that James teaches us about Rahab. By the way, in case you're wondering if I'm contorting this chapter, I'm not. James makes that point very clear in James chapter 2. As he uses her as an object lesson of that good works that flow out of a lively faith. It wasn't good works that earned her any kind of uh, credit of God or Help from Joshua in the army, it was the fact that she had faith first, and her faith was proven by what she did with these men. I was supposed to read a quote, but it's downstairs on the printer, so I you guess you're not going to hear it. That's God's providence, too, by the way. So she has a profession of faith. The spies are the recipients of her good works, leading to a plea. Verses 12 through 14, she desired to be spared from judgment. Pretty reasonable thing. She desired to be spared from the impending destruction of Jericho and all of her inhabitants. We know that's going to happen. In chapter 6, verse 17, it's clear that the city is annihilated by the people of God. And if you too want to be spared from the judgment to come, not a city, but you, the wicked and the evil of the world, if you want to be spared from the judgment of God, which all mankind will face, not a soul on earth can hide from it, then you must, like Rahab, you must believe. You must cry out to the Savior, Be merciful to me, a sinner. He will save. He saved Rahab a prostitute nonetheless, exactly not exactly the greatest track record in the world, because she believed, she had faith and trusted. You too must trust. You can't do enough good works, you can't hide enough spies to earn God's favor, but you can believe and trust in Christ alone for salvation, to escape, indeed, the impending judgment that is coming to all man. But this is something, friends, that we engage in daily, even as Christians. The problem with modern evangelicalism is that they somehow think that the the whole idea of the gospel, because now I'm a Christian, is kind of in my rearview mirror. And I just, you know, it's back there somewhere. It really doesn't have any impact on how I live my life today. But the fact remains is that, just like Rahab, you need the gospel every day. The problem for today's church often is that uh, that's somewhere else. But I need the cross of Christ right now, today, and tomorrow, the day after that. I need the gospel ringing in my ears all the time because I am a sinner. And I need to be reminded of where I put my hope and my trust. Because left to myself, left to yourself, you'll start trusting you. That goes nowhere rapidly. It says, clear relevance for us as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil? How do we expect that we will actually be able to win this battle if we are not regularly looking to the cross of Christ and trusting Him for all of it? None of you in this room, even this afternoon, can say, oh, I've never sinned. I didn't sin today, you know, maybe yesterday, but I I confess that, and I'm good, And but I haven't done that today. All of us have in thought, word, or deed. And as we engage the battle against the flesh, we are reminded of the hope of Christ and the forgiveness that comes from Him when we do sin. We don't have to worry that we will face God's judgment for it. for There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This all leads to a promise. The two spies promise to save her. As an outworking of her faith, she exercises this, these good works in the spies' covenant with her to rescue her and her family from the impending judgment that is coming. There's a condition placed upon it. There's this scarlet robe and a promise of secrecy. So let me take a little bit, make just one comment about the scarlet robe. It won't take long. There's nothing significant about the color. People like to glom on to these very small points like this with no other exegetical support to make a point. The fact that it was scarlet is not germane to the question of the blood of Christ. But others have made much of that. And so just note, it just happens to be red, well, scarlet in this case. But there's a comfort that's carried with it to her. What is that comfort? That because of faith alone, through a pleading to the Savior alone, it resulted in her rescue. The same thing for you and me, that in faith alone, a pleading to the Savior for the help that we need will result in the promise of your eternal rest, an escape from the impending doom that is to come. This is the promise that has been secured, not by the spies and not by Rahab, but... By her great 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 grandson. Did you know that through this singular act and the preservation of Rahab, in all the workings of it, in keeping her alive and her family led set the stage for the coming of the Messiah. You think Joshua 2 is an unimportant text in the Bible? think again through the simple actions of a woman who believed a prostitute nonetheless and all of the matters that surrounded the events the subsequent fulfillment of the promise she is saved but it was most striking is what we read in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 i'm not going to read it i've already let the cat out of the bag anyway but it's there that we see that Jesus Christ is in the line of Rahab, through this act of providence and a demonstration of faith, the seed of the woman is saved from the attack of the seed of the serpent by faith. The serpent would destroy her, but this woman is saved and preserved from judgment. That seed, namely Jesus Christ, and through that seed, namely Jesus Christ, we are saved and rescued from impending doom and judgment. Faith precedes good works, but faith is never alone. Martin Luther declared as such, salvation by faith alone is by faith alone, but is not by a faith that is alone. And so if you profess faith in Jesus Christ this afternoon, you're an apple tree. Is there fruit? Is there a zeal and desire to serve the God of heaven, to honor Him, to worship Him, to do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Is there fruit? I know you're going to say, and I hear this all the time from some of you, actually, well, not as much as I desire. Are you reading your Bible? Not like I'd like to. Okay, nobody is. But it is important to ask the question of whether you desire godliness and righteousness and holiness, is there fruit it comes naturally from one who is truly united to Jesus Christ. So, just some diagnostic questions. Do you desire more fruit in your life? Is it even there? Do you long to love Christ more today than you did yesterday? You mourn sin when it appears. You mourn the fact that you cannot live a day without sinning. Notice mourning is not despairing. Mourning, Regret. I'd like to be this, but I can't be this. Not yet, but someday I will be. To the struggling in these areas, you need to plead for more grace. God will give it. To those bearing fruit, you should be thankful. God is being kind to you and helping you along. Praise Him for His kindness in your life. Note that God is working, doing that which He's promised to do. This chapter highlights for us so many different things. But it does highlight this. That faith precedes works, but works are necessary result of faith. And in that faith, as works flow from us, we escape the impending doom of judgment of a holy God. And through it, God's providence is manifested in works, that he might advance his kingdom against the forces of evil in the world, the world and the flesh and the devil. You, my friends, are in a battle. If you don't feel the battle, you probably need to ask yourself why. For Christians, you're in a battle. There will be scars. There will be difficulties. There will be heartache. There will be counteroffenses of the enemy. But at the end of it all, through simple faith and a people united together by Christ, the victory is already ours. Just like it was for Jericho, it is for us. We need only trust. He who stood in the line of this simple woman, a prostitute woman who believed the God of heaven. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way in which this simple narrative teaches us so much about the Christian life, its battle, its war, its labors. We thank you that it shows us, even in this this simple story, how you preserved your son to bring him to pass that we might defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil. So may we lean upon him, trust him, may we by faith believe all that he has said, and then may we go, do, live obediently, engaged in warfare, engaged in battle, that we might advance your kingdom, all as we stand behind he who leads the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts. Be merciful to us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.